Hello, 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 and welcome to everybody. I, uh, I think we've got people who are starting to come in. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover today, so I'm just going to go ahead and get started as everybody's coming in and getting settled. Um, welcome. Um, <clears throat> my name is Nat Paul, and I am OGEN's Director of Educator Support. I'm very happy to have everybody joining us today. Uh, you should be here for a session called Unpacking the Traps. Uh, understanding Indigenous sovereignty in the Mi'kmaq uh, Mi'kmaq lobster dispute. And we've got scare, uh, scare quotes all over that. And we're going to find out all about what those scare quotes are about today. Um, first, thanks for attending. I really can't say enough about how much we appreciate everyone taking time here. Um, we have, of course, the added stress of operating under COVID with us. Uh, we particularly appreciate all the teachers who are joining us at the end of your day. Uh, we know that those of you on the secondary panel in particular have had yet another wrench thrown at you this month. Um, please keep letting us know how we can be of support. Before we get started, uh, I want to acknowledge a few colleagues who have helped put this together. We have Christy Pagnuti, who's here with us, uh, helping to run things on the tech side and manage questions from the audience. Um, not with us, but always long-suffering and helpful is uh, Rara Zazara, who's helped set up the registration and promotion, and uh, Michelle Thompson, who has been a big part of the development of all of these webinars over the year. Uh, no exception here, so thanks to everybody. Um, given uh, the subject matter today, I do feel really privileged to be able to say something in the way of a land acknowledgement before I introduce our speakers. Um, so I'm speaking from Toronto, uh, which of course is the traditional territory of the Mississauga of the New Credit First Nation, uh, Anishinaabe, Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and Huron Indigenous people, uh, as well as being the contemporary home of a large and diverse Indigenous population. Many of us are not in Toronto. We are gathering, so to speak, from Barrie and Ottawa and Los Angeles and Guelph and Kingston and Quebec and many other places. Um, and acknowledging that and acknowledging these places uh, means acknowledging the individual and particular histories of colonialism and contact and domination that have made all of these places and all of these gatherings possible. In a time uh, when the practice of doing land acknowledgements is starting to become commonplace, it risks losing its power. And this means that we have a chance to remember what it is that we're really doing when we do that. So acknowledging land, I think needs to be said, it means that we're acknowledging power because land is power. Um, and when you teach geography or history or economics or social science or business, you might find that there's this sort of common thread in that land means resources. And because resources mean power, land means power. For your law teachers, uh, you can show your students how fundamental a role the governance of land and the governance of resources play in even the earliest and the most basic of legal systems. It's fundamental to it. The power to determine how resources are used means the power to determine qualities of life for populations according to who can access them and under what circumstances. When we speak about such and such a place uh, being both a traditional and a contemporary home of this population or that group, the point is to remember that the struggle for self-determination is an ongoing one um, and that it is neither the people nor the place involved in it are disappearing. So uh, that's probably enough for me. 
Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers who are gonna show you rather than tell you uh, what that looks like in the real world. Uh, first, we have Bryce Edwards, who is a partner at Oldest Clear Townsend in Toronto. Um, his Aboriginal rights law practice includes representing First Nations in discussions with the Crown on legislative reform and regulatory development. Uh, he's done significant work in various consultation, mining, uh, and land use related planning and initiatives. Bryce also works with First Nations negotiating and litigating on natural resource development projects, advises First Nations within specific claims processes, assists with consultations with various levels of governments and proponents, and litigates major claims regarding treaty rights and Aboriginal title. Before joining OKT, Bryce was a litigation associate at Sherman and Sterling, LLP in New York, working complex litigation. He's a co-founder and first editor-in-chief of the Indigenous Law Journal at U of T Faculty of Law. We also have David Walders, who's deputy director of the Innova uh, Indigenous Innovation Initiative, a platform that provides funding and support for Indigenous innovators and entrepreneurs. Uh, David's a securities lawyer and has served as Assistant Secretary of the Governing Council at U of T since 2013. Uh, before that, he worked at the Permanent Mission of Canada to the United Nations in the Legal, Economic and Social Affairs section. He began his career as a corporate associate at Paul Weiss, Rifkin, Wharton and Garrison LLP in New York, uh, where he was primarily practicing in capital markets. David is Anishinaabe and a member of the Ardoch Algonquin First Nation uh, around Pembroke, if I'm not mistaken. Um, welcome, uh, Bryce and David. And with that, I'll leave it with you guys. Thanks very much. Well, thanks a lot, Nat. Um, you know, as you're introducing me, like, and going through all of that stuff, like, there's this really loud sigh from my 13-year-old who's sitting next to me on the couch. It wasn't, it wasn't about that. <laughs> he, he says it wasn't about that, but it was still, he's just like, oh, my God, shut up. <laughs> just is exactly what you need you know anytime you hear that stuff you got to have somebody being like oh come on um it's great to be here today um just a couple words about myself just to position myself and and uh, david um and i'll throw to you but uh so i'm a, a kid of um italian immigrants and english immigrants uh, i grew up in bc um and uh, just kind of lived a typical sort of middle class kid life um, and then came out to the U of T for law and uh, was very, very interested in working with and for First Nations um, for reasons that, that remain not entirely clear to me. It's just something I always wanted to do. Uh, so I focused on it a lot in law school, went to New York to help keep the world safe for corporations, but I, I found that that was not <laughs> too much to my liking. Um, and so left that and came back and have been working with uh, First Nations ever since at OKT. Um, and I'm just really glad to be able to do it. I'm, I'm super, super grateful for the job that I've got and uh, love it very much. And uh, glad to talk to you all today about some of the work that we're doing and, and some of the stuff that we've uh, learned through the years. Um, and with that, uh, ladies and gentlemen, David Walters. Hi everyone, thanks very much Bryce and Matt. Um, yeah, it is always, I don't, I don't have a kid around here sighing, but it's always uh, a little funny to hear your, you know, uh, an introduction like that. Um, so thank you. Thank you for that. Um, yeah. So as Nat mentioned, um, uh, I'm Anishinaabe from a community in the Ottawa Valley, though I primarily grew up in Toronto. Most of my family actually came from um, 
a reserve in Alderville, um, which is around Roseneath, and then settled uh, in Ardoch and became the Ardoch Algonquin First Nation community, primarily because it was a place where people gathered to winter um, and then later to harvest rice. And um, some members of my family were very heavily involved in the protection of wild rice and still are. Um, and as I hope I'll get a chance to talk about, um, the Arctic Algonquin First Nations have taken a few cases to various levels of courts um, with varying levels of success, but it's been a very active community. Um, I have done some pro bono work with them, but when, when a lot of these cases were uh, going through court, uh, like Bryce, I was trying to save the world, uh, the corporate world in New York and was practicing corporate law there. Um, and, uh, but very glad to be back. Um, and just wanted to say thank you to all of you as a, as an Indigenous person, um, the fact that you've taken some time today to learn about these things where we can have a conversation, I think is really, really valuable. And I think is really the, the way forward and the way these things, some of these complex issues get sorted out and understood. So just miigwech for taking time. And uh, Bryce, do you wanna do you wanna start us off? Yeah, for sure. So I'll I'll fire up the uh, PowerPoint here. Um, so we're we're gonna sort of work our way to the Sibinagadi dispute, um, the Mi'kmaq fishery dispute. Um, but we're gonna sort of take you there, sort of through the years, in order to try to build a bit of a picture of what might be going on and why. Um, but like, spoiler alert. Uh, like my view and, and the view of many is that like what was happening was the exercise of governance over a resource by a party other than the federal crown. Um, most of us would not find that troublesome if that was, uh, you know, a governance authority that we understood and knew, like, for instance, the municipality that we live in or the province. I mean, nobody loves it necessarily, but we're all just like, oh yeah, sure. Like the municipal government's in charge of this and province in charge of that, feds in charge of the other thing. Uh, and the Mi'kmaq are in charge of things too. I mean, they have constitutional rights under um, the treaties and also inherently to manage and use resources. And so after getting tired of waiting, they decided to do that. And boy, oh boy, <laughs> did things ever go sideways. So we're gonna try to sort of work to how that happened. And also like on the way there, we'll show you some of the other ways that uh, indigenous nations have exercised their jurisdiction. So their autonomy and control over resources and other things and some of the sort of strengths and weaknesses of that. And alongside that, we're gonna try to paint the picture of why it is that this is so, like why do people react almost like, um, like with the stages of grief, like denial, and then anger and then sadness that, oh my goodness, the world is ending. Like, why does that happen when we see an indigenous government behaving governmentally uh, and managing a resource? And I mean, you know, the take home I think is, is that it, it doesn't need to be that way. And that maybe this is all actually a lot more boring uh, and just about governance. Um, but for now it's, as you know, uh, a conflict. So we're gonna kind of work our way to that. So that's the, capsule of uh, what we're doing today. David, did I uh, do okay? I'll cover the, all right. Um, so we'll just dive right in um, as soon as I can find the PowerPoint on my computer, sorry. Uh, 
So we've talked about where we come from and what what we do in our sort of day jobs. Um, just a few caveats off the top, like we can talk about issues and challenges, but we're, we're speaking sort of as observers. Um, the nations themselves speak for themselves. So we are not here purporting to speak for any of the nations that we're talking about. Um, we are trying to learn from what is going on, but they speak for themselves. And that's, that's extremely important because there's a whole process behind even who gets to speak, just like we have with our governance system where the premier speaks on behalf of. Uh, so we want to be very clear that that's, we're not purporting to do that. Um, the other thing just to keep in mind as we go through is that when you talk about indigenous jurisdiction and, and you work with First Nations um, as I do, uh, you'll find actually a, a tremendous reluctance um, a lot of the time when you say, oh, you know, this is a great thing you're doing, this, this law and, and this work, uh, want to come and talk about it? Mm, not really. Um, and so, well, why is that? <laughs> and well, I mean, the, the answer is pretty obvious. It's because the, the frequent response of the Canadian state to visible exercise of Indigenous jurisdiction is to squash it in some way, um, whether through law, whether through you know, settler direct action, whether through um, uh, buying them out. I mean, there's a bunch of different strategies, but generally the, the state doesn't react very well all the time. Um, and that's something that you know, needs to change, um, but is the reality. And so that is why you'll find that it's, it's not as easy to come by actually, the information about First Nations governments doing what they do. Um, so with that, I think we're going to, we're going to dive into some of the history and, um, David's going to talk a bit about sort of where, like what the kind of, what's baked in to, um, at least the sort of mainstream, if I can call it that understanding of the position of first nations within the larger sort of Canadian confederation. David. Yeah, thanks Bryce. Um, I think it's really important in any conversation like this to start off with discovery and all of those things and not because, you know, it's, it's, it's simply good to have a grounding of where things came from, but because a lot of these issues are still coming up today. And some of the things I talk about that are going to seem like relics from a time gone by are actually still going on. There's still things like this are still being said at the Supreme Court level. They're still being used as justifications for um, denying Indigenous sovereignty and Indigenous rights uh, across the board. So let me just take you through a little bit of history um, and, uh, and then we'll go from there. So I guess broadly discovery can be traced back to the Crusades of the Catholic Church when the church had to confront issues of invading other territories and other territories invading uh, um, them. And at the time, Pope Innocent IV determined that as part of his sort of divine duty to oversee the spirituality of people, infidels could be justifiably dispossessed of their rights to land. And many centuries later, the same kind of rationale informed the Catholic Church's approach to expeditions to new areas of the globe. So a series of papal bulls that were issued in the 15th and 16th century sanctioned mostly Spanish and Portuguese expeditions to kind of go out in the world and sort of undertake the holy and laudable work of exploring and expanding the Christian world, premised on the idea that conquest and subjugation 
were permissible in the, in the interest of spreading Christianity. And this canon law at the time, in turn, influenced the development of international law. At the time, there was a lot of support for um, among Christian nations of the world that were tied together by this kind of common thread of their faith, and as the Pope being the common central authority. So, you know, there was a unification among this sort of was the early development of international law in that regard among Christian nations that they kind of coalesce around the Pope as their sort of holy and divine leader, and that this canon law would function as a sort of starting point for international law. So as I said, um, one, of the, one of the big papal bulls that you, you might even have, have seen in, in some literature that you've read was called Interstaterra that gave Spain mostly exclusive access to the Atlantic world, including the Americas. Um, but France and England also wanted to get in on this action of you know, exploring and discovering. Um, and so, an issue came up though, um, how to deal with inhabited lands. So much of what, what had been going on previously was sort of discovery, if you like, of places that were not inhabited. But when um, explorers came to the new world, they found that the, the lands were actually inhabited by people. Um, and so now what to do with those? So this idea of settling the land, in quotes, um, kind of came up. So while the lands are occupied by people, we're now gonna settle the land. And how are we gonna do that? Um, we need some kind of a starting point. And that starting point is, even though there are people on this land, even though there are natives in North America and South America and you know all through Canada and the US, they're so low on the scale of civilization that we actually don't need to regard them as having any rights in the land. And therefore, we can consider the land vacant at law. So this idea of it was called terra nullius, this idea that the land could be viewed as legally vacant, gave um, gave the sort of uh, backbone to this idea of settling the land. We're going to go sell this land because it's actually legally vacant, and the people that are there are just not meeting the sort of civilization standards of Europeans. Um, it, this was born out of an ancient Roman law concept called res nullius, which just means uh, uh, that something isn't owned, um, which had some value in early Roman law, but when it was applied to land that people were on, now we're talking about that no one owns the land when it's clear that there are a bunch of people in organized societies on the land. Um, you know, that was a way to justify settling, settling the land. There were a bunch of theories at the time as well about um, uh, hierarchies of civilizations and who would be considered at the top and who would be considered at the middle and close to the bottom. And it's probably no surprise to anyone that the native people that were being encountered uh, in the new world, if you like, were at the very bottom. So this, um, this political theorist named Lewis Henry Morgan um, wrote a piece that gained significant traction in 1877. And he was writing about um, certain tribes of the Hudson's Bay region, as well as coastal tribes of North and South America. And um, these people had used, used a bow and arrow at the time. So they had, according to him, achieved, you know, the upper status of savagery. Then some other tribes used pottery uh, along the Missouri River he thought had achieved some lower set of status of barbarism, which was actually a little higher. And then there were people who domesticated animals and they maybe had achieved this middle status of barbarism. Now this all sounds like 
you know, like a, a throwback to an earlier time, and it is. Uh, but then Charles Darwin published the or on the origin of the species, where he was talking about biological evolution. Some people picked up on this idea that you know a lot of these theories could also be applied uh, from a social evolutionary standpoint. Um, and again, while these seem kind of like you know wild notions that a land could be considered legally vacant and b these people are you know undeserving of recognition as you know, as, as people that are capable of holding rights because they're so low on the scale of evolution, this actually gained traction in law. So this early international law with discovery and with the hierarchy of civilizations gained traction in early decisions by um, Supreme Court in the US and by the Privy Council in Canada, which was the highest court at the time, about specifically about native rights. So um, I'm just going to take you through a couple of these. So one of the famous cases you might have read about was Johnson and McIntosh. So that's a famous Chief Justice Marshall ruling. Um, and he actually, for this was in 1823, he acknowledged that the Native people, this is in the U.S., the Native people had some rights in the land, but the discover, once discovery came, that all ended. Discovery vitiated all of those rights and um, the crown had underlying title to, um, to the lands in question. And sometime later, um, this was in 1919, there was a case in Southern Rhodesia, which is modern day, part of modern day Zimbabwe. There was an issue um, over who owned land. It was either the crown or this private company called the British African Trading Company. Um, and Aborigines at the time said, yeah, I think we might have a claim to this land also. And I mean, that claim was just, was totally uh, drummed out of the discussion. Lord Sumner, who decided the case, kind of famously said, the estimation of the rights of Aboriginal tribes is always inherently difficult. Some tribes are so low in the scale of social organization that their usages and conceptions of rights and duties are not to be reconciled with the institutions or the legal ideas of civilized society. So this is one of the clearest examples of this idea of terra nullius making its way into mainstream law at the highest level. Um, and then one other case was St. Catherine's Milling and the Queen, uh, which was another Privy Council decision. Ultimately that case was really about, fe about um, federalism and about provincial takings, federal takings of provincial land. But it did touch on um, it did touch on Treaty Three rights for uh, Native people, and um, Lord Watson in that case said that basically any rights that were that were held before are gone, and any rights are dependent on this idea of the goodwill of the sovereign. So, sovereign gets to decide. The crown gets to decide whether uh, Aboriginal people that are around have any rights and what those rights look like. Now this kind of short history that spanned many hundreds of years. Um, I bring this up because much of what has happened since that time has largely been directed at kind of reconciling these ideas of sovereignty. So um, eventually, and thankfully, many of these ideas fell out of favor. But now we're left with the idea that if, if sovereignty of the crown was based on these ideas of terra nullius, the land was vacant, and on a hierarchy of civilizations, once those are stripped away, what do we do now? Where do we, where do we turn? 
Um, how do we acknowledge Aboriginal rights and sovereignty while at the same time recognizing crown sovereignty over land? So this is what much of sort of re law in the last 50 or 75 years has, has been addressed at. Um, so now pass it over to Bryce. Get a tech problem? Yes. Uh, I... How about now? I think it's still the same slide. Uh, can you hear me though? Yeah. Okay. Sorry about that. Yeah. I thought it we won't get into it. Um, yeah. So I just wanted like just to um, uh, touch on that briefly. I mean, the, the thing that's important, I think, uh, today, like for, for teachers today in particular, is that like these notions of crown sovereignty that are based on these fictions of Terra and Elias, like things that are clearly just not true, but were importantly sort of justifying ideas at the time, so whatever, um, are very much in operation today. Like that's kind of the, the set point that the system that we live in is built on. And that is part of the reason, like all of these Terra Nullius and the, the papal bulls and all this stuff is part of the reason that most folks have never thought of indigenous nations as having laws that are enforceable. Like that is a direct uh, descent from these profoundly racist colonial attitudes that that were part of how this all sort of came into being. And though we've arguably, you know, moved past those, it's still built into our systems, right? Like the Canadian constitution to this day does not recognize inherent First Nations jurisdiction. Like it says Aboriginal and treaty rights are protected. It says Aboriginal title exists, but you have to prove those in court. Like you have to actually go and establish that your nation exists in the first place and then win the case in order to carve out that that space for uh, your nation's jurisdiction. So imagine, you know, that Ontario wants to go to court against Canada and the first thing that Canada says is, well, first you're gonna have to prove that you exist. You're gonna have to prove that you're a province. We're really not sure about this. And, and they spend all of their time and money on that question and never get to the question of whatever it was that Ontario actually wanted to talk about. Like that's the situation that the nations are still in because of the existence of Canadian law today. So this is not really history, like it's very much with us um, and explains actually quite a bit in terms of, you know, we say, well, why doesn't this work? Why doesn't that work? Well, one of the reasons is that the legal system in particular is built on some very questionable stuff that then continues to be um, operational uh, and, and makes certain outcomes difficult or impossible. So then, so let's just talk briefly. So we talk about like a sovereign being a, govern, a government that has some legitimacy and exercises jurisdiction. Jurisdiction meaning what? I mean, at its most basic, like, uh, decision-making and control. Like you have jurisdiction over something, you get to decide and uh, you can control it in some fashion. Nobody really controls everything, even governments, but you know, you're viewed as the legitimate decider of a particular question. Um, and so obviously this happens in all kinds of places, not just you know, in governments, it happens 
in families and social relations and communities. Um, and it happens particularly as we are talking about today with regard to access to resources um, of value. Uh, and it's very important who decides how that access gets worked out. And there's a lot of layers to it, right? Like there's, and I, I mentioned this earlier, like there's a municipality and then there's the province and then there's the federal government and there might be an agency that, uh, like a conservation authority that has something to say about how this or that happens. Like we are all actually quite comfortable with all kinds of different layers of authority all operating at the same time. Um, and so what we're trying to do with this discussion is to denormalize the assumption that the crown is the only source of those layers, um, because that's not true. Uh, in, in fact, like there are nations that live on these lands, always have, that have laws and that govern things. Um, and it's just a matter of recognizing that, like, and make that the starting point that that's not controversial. That's just like, oh, okay. A whole lot of other stuff might get easier uh, to understand and to do. Um, so crown sovereignty, I mean, as a lawyer, this is something like, we love this stuff. I, I suspect very few others do. Um, but like the, it, particularly when you're working on the first nation side of these cases, like sovereignty is magic, right? Like there really is like, it's just magic words that the crown said that makes them the source of power and authority and everybody else can approach and, and ask questions and try to work stuff out, but the crown is the crown, right? Um, and that was really the way Canadian system was working until in the 70s, a Calder case, uh, the Calder case came, came along. And David has done a lot of work on this um, and is gonna speak to this part. Yeah, so as Bryce said, I think that was a very important point. Many of these things are still in operation and I, I wasn't trying to suggest that you know we've moved so far away from <laughs> of these ideas. They're still they're still around. Um, there was a a case called Chilcotin in 2015 that most people regard as very highly as protective of and recognizing um, Aboriginal land rights. And even though they said there that Terranelli has never existed in Canada, they also said that the Crown has underlying title to all of Aboriginal land. This was in 2015, right? So. Um, Calder was a significant step. Um, you could argue was one of the was one of the most significant steps that the Supreme Court took in the protection of Aboriginal rights, mainly because they said, you know, your rights are not derived from um, uh, from Europeans bestowing rights on you, and they were not um, uh, affected in that way by sovereignty. They were not undermined. You have rights, you have inherent rights. And the idea of having inherent rights, this was the first time in 1973 that a high court had ever said, you know, you were living on the land in organized societies, you had governments and social structures and cultures that can be respected by law and recognized by law. Um, and that led really to what you might think of as sort of the modern era of Aboriginal rights litigation. The cases that I took you through before spanned over, you know, a hundred and some odd years, and there wasn't much else. Like there wasn't a lot of litigation about specifically about Aboriginal rights. And then after Calder in 1973, a bunch of things happened. I mean, one of them was section, the, the constitution was patriated and the section 35 was added it started a huge flood of Aboriginal rights litigation um, that kind of continues to this day. And 
I mean, just at a background, politically, a lot of a lot of things happened between 1919 and 1973 in the world um, in terms of the human rights movement um, and civil rights movements in the U.S. Um, post World War II um, issues and post World War II protections for um, uh, minority rights and land rights, and so a lot happened in the intervening years, and I think the time kind of was just right in 1973 for this kind of recognition to take place. And if we had moved sort of steadily up since then, I think we'd be in a much better position, but it always seems like, you know, one step forward and two steps back um, in many ways. Um, but yeah, just, um, just to keep in mind that Calder was sort of a, a key point to consider when you're thinking about sort of how things were before legally and kind of where things could be going since 1973. So uh, the main topic then being, you know, First Nations exercising jurisdiction. Uh, and as I mentioned, we're going to sort of briefly touch on a few ways that happens, uh, finishing up with the uh, Seabid and Nagadi uh, dispute, because that's a very uh, vigorous way of doing it. Um, so there's a few different ways that authority and control is exercised by nations in Canada today. Um, programmed evolution, shared arrangements, um, and inherent are probably your three main baskets, and I'll just run through those fairly quickly. Um, program devolution basically means that you know, your, your rubric is, look, federal money, provincial rules, First Nations implementation. That's program devolution. So on child welfare, the, the province sets all the rules, the feds fund it, and the First Nations operate the, the service agencies that handle child welfare. But they're doing that following provincial rules. Um, doesn't have to be just child welfare. There's devolution of education. There's de there's all kinds of uh, areas of authority in which um, this approach has been tried. And uh, as you might imagine, it has not been enormously successful, although there have been times when it has been pretty successful. But a lot of the time, like asking a small uh, remote First Nation to fully understand and implement like a provincial framework on a complicated issue is going to be a big lift. It's gonna be a, a fair bit of work. And all of those rules were made by people not from those communities who don't even speak the language that everybody there speaks. So the chances of it being particularly responsive to their circumstances are, are low. Um, the other problem that's happened a lot with this program devolution, which has been kind of the way the feds have tried to say, hey, we're gonna help First Nations govern, is that they underfund it and no government can, can govern without money. I mean, that's just fundamental to, to the whole exercise. Um, and nations don't have taxation authority of any real uh, value because of the way the system is set up. So they're left with whatever they can get from the feds, which, on the whole tends to be less even than comparable provincial funding um, and then is deployed in extremely expensive circumstances. So, you know, less money to begin with and being deployed in a place where everything costs double. 
um, with predictable results. Uh, a lot of the time, you know, the the uh, programs have not been enormously successful, and then the nations that have been trying to implement them have, have ended up quite frustrated. Um, so, as a strategy, it's not necessarily never going to work, but it's got some real challenges. Um, so that's one way in which nations are taking on some authority and control. Um, a, a more encouraging way and a sort of like uh, a one where you see larger amounts of power sharing and resource um, allocation is what we gather under the, the basket of, of shared arrangements. And these can be a bunch of different things. Um, uh, the Tura Wampuman Treaty at Niagara, which was one of the foundational documents for people living in North America that were not indigenous to the place, um, was, uh, well, actually, David, do you want to speak to this? I know you've got uh, lots like, to say. Right, if you want. Um, yeah, so, I mean, the Tura Wampum essentially is, is uh, um, two rivers side by side. And the notion, or two canoes. No, I'm not going to do it right. I'm going <laughs> to, David, you, <laughs> you handle this. The, um, so most people have probably heard about the Royal Proclamation. That was uh, 1763. Um, and there were a whole variety. This was signed ostensibly between uh, settlers and Indigenous people at the time. Um, there were a lot of reasons behind like there were a lot of reasons for um, it being signed and a lot of incentive that, you know, colonial governments had to keep First Nations in line at the time. Um, their armies were very strong um, and there was a real security issue. There were a bunch of people in the new world surrounded by a bunch of like native people with fairly good armies. So to have some kind of a peace treaty, if you like, was advantageous. Also, there was a ton of unexplored land that you know, the people to the new world wanted to go and explore. So, um, but you can't think of, you can't think of the Royal Proclamation as sort of a constitutional document. It was a colonial decree. It was um, vaguely written. It hasn't really been understand even in, you know, hundreds of years of people studying it. Like I read it and I don't really know what it was entirely aimed at. So, Definitely the native people at the time that put their mark on it didn't know what they were signing. But then shortly after there was something called the Treaty of Niagara where it was actually a sit down with native communities and with uh, settler folks. And there was exchange of gifts and there, the idea was trying to facilitate some understanding of what each thought that they were kind of, what arrangement they thought they were getting into. And native communities brought um, two row wampum belts, which are two rows of purple separated by three rows of white. And they, you, you've probably seen them. Um, they signify uh, a canoe, one, one row of purple signifies canoe, the other row of purple signifies a colonial ship. And we're traveling down the same path parallel, but not crossing. So we're respecting the sovereignty of each nation and we're traveling down the river together in um, peace and respect and friendship and peace and respect and friendship are what the three rows of white that separate the rows of purple symbolize. Now, this was how the natives understood what they were getting into. And this was presented and explained by all accounts in a fairly clear way to the colonial governments at the time. This is our understanding of what we're getting into. 
And that's a constitutional document. I mean, this is a founding constitutional document. This was the original arrangement of shared sovereignty. And there's a reason why, at, you know, Bryce and I teach at U of T Law School. There's a two-row wampum belt hanging, framed, hanging in, in, uh, in, at the law school. And it's not because it's kind of a cool looking piece of native art. It's a foundational, the foundational constitutional document. That's, that's what native people thought we were getting into. And everything really that's ha happened then is served to sort of undermine or obfuscate that fairly straightforward agreement. Awesome. Um, so following on from that, you know, actually fairly encouraging beginning, which, you know, uh, didn't last. Uh, we have historic treaties, sometimes called the number treaties. Um, there's some that go back further. Number treaties were signed sort of late 1800s and through the 19, early 1900s, um, and were essentially treated by the crown, at least as surrenders of land. Um, which is why it says historic treaties side eye emoji, which is the one that's like, what the, because come on, like these treaties are indefensible. I mean, you just read them and, and you just like, there isn't a group of people in the world that would agree to such a thing ever, unless they were starving, which in fact they were. Um, so these treaties are still relied on in court. The crown says, so, you know, we have authority because you surrender the land. Um, to this day. And like I said, I mean, they're just, they would never pass muster now, but nonetheless, they're they're with us. Um, and they do importantly show a relationship that was formed, um, including, you know, gifts that are exchanged, which is a way of uh, generating relations and, and in a law-like way. Um, the Crown offered $4 per person uh, in many of the treaties uh, in 1905, 1906 in Ontario. Um, Today, they do still make those offerings and it is still $4 per person. They actually like our government and our meaning, you know, me and folks from the you know, mainstream Canada, government goes to those nations and hands out $4 on treaty day. No adjustment for inflation. And I mean, what are we doing, right? Like this is the sort of thing that, uh, it happens a lot, uh, I think, you know, maybe because it just folks aren't noticing or anyway, those are the, so that's a historic treaty. When you hear about those $4 per person to this day. Um, modern treaties are downstream of Calder and Calder being the case where the Supreme Court actually knocked the Canadian government badly back on their heels and said, no, um, uh, nations do indeed have rights and, and ones of fairly significant strength. Um, and so modern treaties are getting there in terms of cooperative, you know, I mean, they're, they're really like confederal arrangements, like they're not dissimilar to the sort of arrangements you have between federal and provincial governments or interprovincially, like they have a significant scope of powers that can be exercised. Um, there's funding attached, uh, you know, and they're, they're more in the nature of the kind of arrangements you'd see between you know, sovereigns operating in the same space where they everybody's got to make a bit of room and figure out how to work together. Um, so those are okay. Uh, they tend to move pretty slow and um, they definitely have their challenges, but seem encouraging. Um, another thing the Crown's tried to do is to just consult a lot. And you probably hear about the duty to consult, um, comes up in news a lot. This is really like what governments do when they're governing 
populations and the populations get upset about it. They're like, oh, we want to hear from you about what you think about what we're doing. Um, you know, <laughs> we don't want to talk about ourselves anymore. You talk about us for a while. And so they do a lot of this, but really it's, uh, it's been a real struggle. Um, to because it's still about like the decider who listens and then goes and decides and the nations who come and say well we don't like this or that um so again it's it's falling short of a, a real sort of governance or or um exercising jurisdiction it's more about sort of participating in the crown's exercise of jurisdiction um nonetheless there's been some real efforts in that direction including in ontario the far north act which was a land planning approach that that put the nations in a fairly significant role uh, where a land use plan couldn't be approved without their approval. Um, and without their approval, a bunch of things couldn't happen, but their approval could allow for things to happen. So it was in, in a lot of ways quite progressive, um, but also falling way, way short of the kind of uh, authority that in reality those nations already exercised over the far, what we call the far north, um, which is only far from Queen's Park. Like the nations that live there are not far away from it. Like they live on those lands and literally nobody else does in, the, in all the, the northern part of Ontario that uh, no one ever visits. Um, and so they were quite perplexed and ultimately irritated that Queen's Park who are like literally thousands of kilometers away are like, okay, well, here's the rules for this part of the world. And they're just like, well, no, I mean, you come up here and tell us that, which they weren't inclined to do. Uh, and there's also indigenous protected and conserved areas, which is a, another way of exercising authority over land. This is more, uh, instead of national parks, there's sort of conservation areas um, where the nations themselves are taking a lead. Uh, these have a lot of promise for areas where conservation is a goal. Um, it gets a lot more difficult when uh, using resources is on the table, which is where we're headed next. So inherent jurisdiction, um, and this is sort of the, the heart of things. Um, these are all, so Ardok, Algonquin, Kitchen, Max, Sibit, Ninawag, Haudenosaunee Development Institute, and Sibinagadi First Nations Regulated Fishery. These are all very recent examples of First Nations um, in Canada, or what we call Canada, just saying, well, enough is enough, we're gonna do this, like this is our, and our, our authority is inherent, meaning it inheres in us. Uh, it, it is not sourced from the crown. Uh, if the crown ceased existing tomorrow, we would still have that authority. We have it because we're a people and we live in this place uh, and you know, have language and law and all the things that the peoples have. Um, so this is, I mean, in a lot of ways, like this is the oldest fashioned way, right? I mean, inherent jurisdiction is just the jurisdiction they've always had to live in this place and govern these resources. Um, so for, Ardak Algonquin, um, I'll let David speak to that. That was uh, similar to Kitchenamax and Inuigur KI, a mining dispute uh, in Ontario at about 20, 2007, eight, around there. Yeah. Um, yeah, AFNA was uh, 28. I'll just be fairly brief. So um, uh, a private uranium mining company decided to uh, engage in exploratory drilling on lands around our Argonquin First Nation. Um, several members of the community engaged in a peaceful blockade, which um, prevented them, prevented the corporation from drilling. 
uh, they were taken to court and ultimately fined and sentenced to jail. Um, that decision was overturned um, by the Court of Appeal. Um, and the reasons for overturning uh, uh, the, the trial court ruling were pretty significant. Um, uh, unlike other, a lot of other decisions in this way that I've read, um, the justice there put heavy weight on the specific factors, uh, sometimes called Gladue factors, um, uh, which affects uh, in which uh, the uh, Ab Aboriginal people are affected by the justice system in a different and disproportionate way. So um, he highlighted the estrangement of Aboriginal people from the Canadian justice system and years of dislocation off their land and um, also who they were as people. So um, Harold Perry was my uncle. He was one of the people who was, um, who was arrested. He was 78, not in very good health. Um, there was a, another woman who was a chief at the time and she was a single mother. And he said, you know, these fines are, these fines are ridiculous. And you have, you have the inherent jurisdiction to be on this land and we're not gonna jump right to um, these sort of really penal measures to, um, to prevent you from uh, exercising your land rights. Um, and so it really addressed the issues of inherent control and jurisdiction and that Aboriginal people are, are not to be treated just like any other protesters due to systems of systemic and inherent control. Um, do you wanna talk about the other ones, Bryce? I mean, they're um, fairly similar in nature. Yeah, so KIR, um, I, full disclosure, I was one of their lawyers, um, is a remote community. So it's Big Trout Lake. Uh, it is, there's no roads, there's no rail, there's no power lines um, yet. Um, and uh, nobody else lives there or ever has except the Anishinaabe, Anishinaabe people, uh, including the people of KI. Um, and it, in this case, it was a platinum company that was drilling in a lake nearby. and they said no, um, that that was not something that they were prepared to have happen. Um, and so they went and uh, told the company that it needed to leave and refused to let them come back. Uh, the company sued for $10 billion and proceeded to mount a fairly fierce um, litigation through the Ontario courts to try to force the nation into allowing them onto the land. Um, for a while, the court, I mean, the court, did the best it could, I think, with what it had to work with, which is the Canadian legal system that doesn't recognize the nations as having decision-making authority over their own lands. Um, I mean, the, the court was sitting in Thunder Bay and that was a judge that had been taught his entire career that that was Crown land, Crown land, Ontario Crown. Um, and the fact that nobody there uh, even spoke English, um, you know, I mean, it, it should give us pause, but maybe it didn't, right? Like maybe that just doesn't, you don't think about those things. You're just part of that system. It's like, well, it's Ontario. You've got to follow the law and meaning our law. Uh, so they also ended up uh, ultimately getting sentenced to six months in jail. Um, that sentence was uh, then overturned by the Court of Appeal in the same decision that David was talking about. They heard the two cases together. And in fact, the result of that was that Ontario completely revamped its mining regime, uh, rewrote the laws in order basically to make sure this didn't happen again. Cause I think everybody agreed that this was a terrible, terrible result and absolutely not worth it for a 
a low stakes, high, uh, like highly unlikely platinum play, you know, vastly far away from, you know, any way of even getting the resource out. So not great. Um, but that is what happens to the nations when they exercise their own jurisdiction. They said, well, this is our law. You can't do this. And they got put in jail. Um, Haudenosaunee Development Institute uh, is the one I'll turn to next. They were um, uh, an arm of the Six Nations government in, outside Brantford and started um, requiring developers in their uh, area to apply not just to Brantford and the other authorities for permits, but also to them. And they charged the you know, same, same rules like they did it the way permits are done. You can't make a profit on it. You only charge what it costs you to review it. Uh, and then they would set conditions if, if any were needed. Uh, the city of Brantford took poorly to this, um, to say the least. And I'll show you, just to give you a flavor of what we're still in some ways dealing with. Um, so this, I, I'll read it because it's, it's probably almost impossible to see on your screens, but this is a city of Brantford's recitals to uh, a bylaw that they passed. Um, and this was in 28, 9, 10, somewhere in there. Um, so Haudenosaunee Development Institute, part of Six Nations who have a, an, an incredible legal tradition and, and can fairly claim to have had great influence on the development of the federal structures of both Canada and the US, um, were governing alongside Brantford. Uh, and Brantford describes it, it's in this uh, second recital. Um, they describe this as a parallel, unauthorized and uncontrolled system that undermines and hinders the role of the municipality to develop and implement policies, plans and zoning bylaws and regulate and control development, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, later on, they, they quote one of the Ontario uh, ministers saying, Haudenosaunee Development Institute does not have the jurisdiction or the authority to run a parallel land use planning approval system. Uh, no one should pay this fee to HDI. Um, so, I mean, how far, like, this is not a long time ago. Um, and this notion of what HDI is doing is being uncontrolled, uh, unauthorized and uncontrolled is, racist garbage like that anyone that is familiar with six will know that that is not a place where things are not controlled there are very very strict and robust rules about who does what and under what authority and hdi was acting as uh, uh, an organ of that government now Bradford didn't like it fine governments tend not to like other governments but to describe it as unauthorized and uncontrolled is to me like playing straight into the racist tropes that we were talking about earlier, that somehow when First Nations are exercising jurisdiction, what that is, is basically savagery. And like, so this is why I say, like how far have we really come? Because this kind of stuff is not like, this is right nearby Toronto and not long ago. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that, as I say, like we, we have to move past this because it's just, it's not even true. Uh, and frankly, this kind of fear mongering is very destructive, uh, destructive. And like, you can't really build something that works when you're busy denying the existence of um, or misdescribing uh, the government that, that you, you don't want to deal with, in this case, Six Nations. So 
this case didn't go well. I mean, HDI's folks were indeed found to be acting unlawfully according to Ontario's laws um, and ended up getting fines and uh, injunctions and things like that. So not a ton of progress there. Um, which brings us to Sibinagadi. Uh, so, I mean, I think most folks are probably pretty familiar um, with what took place. Uh, you know, there was violence, there was a building that was burned, there was a great deal of intimidation. Uh, there was very, very inflamed feelings uh, about accessing an inshore lobster fishery um, in a season that was not like the federal open season by Mi'kmaq fisher, fishermen. Um, and so I've, I've just included a statement here uh, from Colin Spruill of the Bay of Fundy Inshore Fishermen's Association. Um, he said, the First Nation issuing its own fishing licenses is not based in Canadian law. Uh, <laughs> no shit. <laughs> but, like, uh, but then he goes on to say, uh, in the absence of law and order, good people can be forced to take the law into their own hands and the responsibility for that falls squarely on Minister Jordan and her predecessors who have not enforced the rules. So, I mean, this is a not even transparent threat to use direct violence against uh, Mi'kmaq fishermen who are, and fisherwomen who are exercising authority, jurisdiction, and accessing a resource uh, and denying, like in the absence of law. Like again, like this is straight up racism. This refusal to see First Nations governments as governments and their laws as actual real laws is is not defensible anymore, like because they are real. And what Canada needs to do and the nations need to do and the provinces need to do is to, to face that reality and then work with it, not simply deny its existence and then explode with anger, which is basically uh, what we saw in, in uh, this instance. Uh, and I just wanna show you a couple other things very quickly where then we can wrap up and uh, take some questions. Uh, sorry, I just need to find a spot in my screen that I can't reach for a second. Okay, so this is a picture of a, a lawless and savage nation destroying resources. Those are lobster tags. I'm obviously being super sarcastic here. They had a whole governance plan like that they actually had been trying to work with the federal government on for 20 years and not, not for nothing. They have constitutionally protected and Supreme Court recognized rights to participate in the governance of this fishery. And we're getting nowhere with the feds because the feds just sort of were like, well, we're gonna do what we wanna do. Uh, and so this is them saying, okay, well, we're gonna manage it and we know how to do that because they do this all the time. And so these are the, uh, the licenses and trap tags that they issue. So a picture of lawlessness or not. Um, one other thing I wanted to show you as well, just to get a sense of scale, because I think this matters quite a bit. Um, so that's the Sibinagadi fishery right there. And that is the non-indigenous commercial fishery that is also taking place in the same part of the ocean. Um, so in terms of, you know, is this resource being exploited? Is this the sort of thing that justifies near riots, burning things down, intimidation of communities? Uh, hmm. You look at the picture and you think, well, seems pretty hard to justify. Seems like maybe something else is going on here, um, which is that, you know, when 
there's a threat to access to resources, um, you know, there tend to be violent reactions. Uh, but I don't think we can lose sight of this kind of picture, right? Like, look at what's at stake, like, and then think about what's happening to those communities because of the structures of Canadian law that make their law invisible to us. Um, and maybe we could do this differently, you know? Um, so going back to our presentation. Uh, so those are the reactions. So we'll talk then like this, and this is where we wrap up. Um, but you know, as we've touched on, like the, the idea of crown sovereignty is, is very much still with us. Um, and David, do you want to speak to um, these next few points? Because there's, there's been a few recent cases where, again, like not a lot of hope in sight. Um, just given the time, I'm just going to mention Mikasu uh, really briefly. It was a 2018 Supreme Court case. And essentially what it, it concluded, the majority concluded, was that while there is a duty to consult and all these things, which I would have liked to talk about if I had the time, duty to consult in honor of the crown and sui generis rights. And that these are all political, these are all political and legal artifacts that, you know, tend not to mean a whole lot, but um, in practical purposes, but the duty to consult applies only to the crown when it is, um, when it is acting in an executive function, it doesn't apply to the crown when it's making laws, so the legislative function. So in other words, when the crown is exercising its sovereign authority to make laws, there's no duty to consult um, Aboriginal communities. And it's essentially, it has ultimate and underlying sovereignty to do that. Um, Justice Abella, who, um, she gave a concurring judgment, but it reads more like a dissent, really took issue with this, uh, and rightly so, um, saying that, you know, this harkens back to centuries old thinking about underlying sovereignty and the crown being the one that decides who has rights and who decides those rights and when those rights are heard. So um, this is, there are at least two Mikasu cases. One is from earlier, but the one I'm talking about is from 2018. So. Uh, just something to keep watching. Um, I don't know what's Bryce would have a, probably a better idea of what's in the pipeline as far as any challenges to that, but uh, I don't know of any. Um, and it's a fairly recent case. Um, I don't, yeah, I don't think anybody wants to, to try that one again. I mean, given how it went, I think folks are thinking this is not necessarily the Supreme Court that's going to lead the way on this. Um, frankly, a lot of observers think the Supreme Court is getting a little bit like, okay, we've done enough. It's time for the political uh, side to step up. Um, anyway, so this sort of brings us to the conclusion and, and I'm happy, I, uh, David, I don't know about you, but we can hang out uh, longer. I know we're at time, but um, happy to uh, discuss this and take questions and stuff. Um, but yeah, we just sort of wanted through this to, to just consider what, what, what we've learned about Canada as a country through our lives helps us see and what it makes it very difficult for us to see. Like for instance, difficult to see the existence of nations as nations and, and their laws as laws. Um, and consider that these legal orders of indigenous nations already exist. They're already in operation. They always have been. Um, and they're being used more and more. And 
for me as a lawyer, like what's exciting about that is that actually generates transformative possibilities for Canadian legal and political orders as well. Um, because a lot of the approaches that Indigenous legal orders take to complex problems are extraordinarily sophisticated and useful. And ones that we, you know, I think, like we meaning sort of the Canadian state would, would do well to emulate or to work with. So, you know, perhaps the reaction on seeing the exercise of First Nations jurisdiction instead of anger could be one of like curiosity or even gratitude that, well, look at that, like that's exciting and interesting ideas. And, and maybe we can talk about that and maybe we can adjust the way we do things and, and work better with what's happening there. So that's the sort of the way forward, I think, that absolutely can be done. It's not easy and, and it takes the work of a lot of people over many, many years. But I mean, if that's the path that we're on, I think that's that's the right one. And with that, uh, we are done. Thank you very much again for your attention. Uh, really glad to be able to, to talk about this stuff. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Uh, that was great. Oh my god, I, uh, I'm, I'm sitting here with this like you know massive grin on my face the whole time just because I'm thinking so much and I uh, I keep having all of these ideas. Not the, not the least of which is this. Um, you know, you're talking about sort of like uh, uh, the the sort of the terra nullius and the and the the, the notion of the uh, unoccupied land. And it's not the legal thing, but it, uh, it, it makes me think of sort of, you know, the whole value of a humanities education. And I think about the teachers who are teaching, you know, the, the great Canadian novels and just sort of how much of this stuff, when we, when we teach the, the Canadian tropes about how much of our literature is filled with empty landscapes, for example, and, and um, you know, the, the stories about coming to a frozen barren land that needed to be occupied and all of these kinds of things, when in fact, it was a, a fertile and very much occupied land and how much of the sort of stories of conquering a harsh and, uh, and uh, empty landscape, the, the sort of the Canadian um, identity as being a, an empty landscape that was painted you know, uh, something to take to, to your literature classes and stuff. Um, there's a few questions that sort of have come up uh, from, <laughs> from other people other than me. Um, so probably we'll pay attention to those ones first. Um, most, uh, um, uh, most urgently one. Uh, so I think a lot of people were quite taken, uh, Bryce, with the, with the uh, graphic you threw up on the, on the lobsters. Um, quick question, uh, when you talk about the contrast between the commercial fishery and the indigenous fishery, is that just the Canadian fishery or is that the, in, the international fishery as well, including specifically the, the Chinese trawling was called out, but um, do you happen to know that? Uh, I, I believe that is the Canadian commercial fishery that is pictured. Um, okay. I can source it, it's got footnotes, but I can't see them right now. I think it's the it makes sense to me that it would be the Canadian fishery because that would be a weird comparison um, but mm -hmm. I, I think that sounds right as well and then uh, we also uh, somebody asked as well whether or not um, whether the two row was included and explicitly acknowledged uh, in the Niagara process from the colonial perspective um, and whether or not uh, either of you know whether dish and uh, dish with one spoon was involved then 
Um, he says he was aware that it was present because of the First Nations involved, um, but uh, was it Crown acknowledged? Uh, so then he uh, uh, does history teaching as well. So it says uh, it's a history question, but also sort of a legal and environmental one with a legal precedent to it. Uh, I mean, the short answer is yes, uh, as far as I know. Um, the Crown's negotiator was Brandt, yeah? Yeah, who was who spoke Mohawk, had married in, um, and was an extraordinary statesman, it, like it's sort of in both worlds. Um, and yeah, I mean, they, like it's hard to even imagine now, like there was a legitimate consideration given to having a, a state, a um, Mohawk state between what then became the United States and Canada. Like that was a policy option that was being discussed by like the highest levels of government. Like they were an absolutely formidable force. So yeah, I mean, it was a different scene back then. Hmm. And the dish with one spoon, as I understand, this was a, um, there's a different structure of a wampum belt. Um, I mean, we, we talk about living in dish with one spoon territory now, uh, but it was an agreement between the Iroquois Confederacy and uh, the Anishinaabe and the Mississaugas to mm -hmm. resource share among themselves. So less focused on, you know, the path forward for a shared sovereignty with non-native people, but a way that we were going to share each eat out of the same dish with the spoon um, uh, as a resource sharing for the, um, by and among the indigenous communities. That was my understanding. And it, predate, it predates the two of Wampum Niagara by hundreds of years, I think. I think that was a much older Wampum Belt. But it is like, it. it is a source of international or confederal law. Like that's, that's the sort of, is like how do groups of people live in the same or similar places and share and yeah embodied in that so this live in, in reciprocal and share like just i this uh i, I just this thing that you mentioned with uh with with brantford and, and the and the six nations like i just for you teachers out there i would invite you to just put this situation to your to your students and say look there are two governments here both are saying they're governments how will you decide which is a government and which is not just decide Come up with a rubric. Come up with a way. Come up with criteria. Good luck. How will you decide? Go. Do it. You have, what is it, 75 minutes? Go. Do it. Um, uh, question about the about the platinum, uh, about the platinum mining thing. Now, and and actually I'm I'm curious about this too. Did 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 I hear this correctly? Does does this mean that Anka overturned because the trial judge uh, failed to adequately consider gladiator factors? Uh, yeah, that, that was the heart of it. They found that six months was an inappropriate um, sentence for contempt of court in this instance. Okay. The contempt being that they had been ordered to let the mining company do its thing and they refused to do that. Honestly, it's one of the best things I've ever read out of the Ontario Court of Appeal. Um, that decision is really quite yeah. interesting and, and says a lot of pretty wise things about how to work with various uh, authorities over the same land. Um, and really, I think ultimately it was about forbearance. It's just like, you know, everybody relax, like stop putting mm -hmm. people in jail. Yeah, we, uh, there, there is actually a generalist question about case names and I'm gonna come to that in a second here, oh. but can you, uh, can, you say the, can you say the name of that case again? Cause people are gonna wanna dig for that one. 
Uh, that one's Platinex is the easiest way to, so Platinum, Platinum but with EX at the end. Uh, if you do just Platinex case, it'll pop up. There's several, but it's the very, I think the very first one is the best one. That's the, that's the one we want. <laughs> and then after that, it just starts to uh, get less great. Um, but yeah, there's a series of decisions and then the others are Algonquin, which I think David links. Did you, somebody was putting out links. I don't know if. No, but up. someone was putting out links. Yeah, no, that was me. I, I meant Yeah, I was very grateful for those. For a minute there, I was just sending it to you two, which was dumb. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Christy, for actually redirecting them to the people who needed them. That was that was me. Um, from earlier on in the presentation then, so this was something. How did it happen? So uh, earlier on, you were speaking about sort of terra nullius and so forth. How did it, like that was like fairly, I mean, for its time, it was its thing, but it was quite regressive with respect to a view of of uh, of, of rights inhering in Indigenous people and, and not inhering. How did it, it, it seems to have moved fairly quickly from that view to a view of Aboriginal title being a thing that could exist and, and, and fiduciary responsibility being a thing that could exist. Like what, was there a, a learning curve that happened very, very quickly in, in that time? Like what, what happened between those two sort of moments in, in, in colonial jurisprudence that could explain that jump? Yeah, I think, um, so it, it wasn't that palatable for, you know, in sort of more modern culture that you could think of a modern political or legal culture, you could think of a land actually not being owned by anyone because they were not civilized to have any rights. And there was there were large gaps between when cases were decided by higher courts that dealt with Aboriginal law. And as I mentioned, you know, there was the Southern Rhodesia case was in 1919. And that was about modern day Zimbabwe and a Privy Council case. And between 1919 and like the Calder case, not a whole lot went on of significant note. So th there were a lot of years where a lot happened in, in other parts of the world, civil rights gained um, currency. As I said, there were a ton of reparations and, um, and things like that that obviously came out of the learnings from the Second World War. By the time, 70, by the time 1973 rolled around, this seemed really antiquated. Like now we're talking about people that, you know, are low on the scale of civilization such that their land should have been considered vacant at law. So, you know, that the Calder decision was one, you know, one giant step forward, I'd say in that regard, but there've been a bunch of steps backwards. I mean, the, the case that I was mentioning, the Chilcotin case that you might've put up, yeah. John, Bur John Burroughs wrote an article uh, I think in 2015 called the durability of terra nullius, where he kind of argues that, you know, even though the Supreme Court's come out and explicitly said, this is not the law now, nor has it ever been the law in Canada as a civilized country. But by the way, the crown still, oh, the crown still has underlying sovereignty to like all Aboriginal lands. So I don't know how you get one without the other. Like how does, so the idea is that these are not, these ideas are not settled and they keep kind of creeping up in different places, unfortunately. Yeah, and I, I wouldn't want to leave you with the impression that Aboriginal title is something that really exists very much. Like yeah. there's, there's one, there's one recognized Aboriginal title 
in Canada, the Chilcot, and, and it took them, I think, 20 years in court and many millions of dollars. And they're now still fighting to actually implement any of it. So like, it's actually, and this is my, my difficulty with a lot of what the courts are doing is that it, it presents as though it's a solution when it is in fact, just more of the same. Like it's just more delay, more complication, more not exercising control and power over lands uh, and resources and helping people you know, thrive in their lives. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it's still a very, very, very hard thing to do, uh, to establish. Like you have to prove it and governments are not just saying, no, yeah, go ahead, you have title. Unlike having to prove that Ontario is a thing, as you mentioned. Right? Right. Like Ontario doesn't have to go to court and prove that they have, that's that's the start point. It's great. It's a huge advantage. We're here. Right. Um, another question from early on uh, is, uh, oh, actually, this is one I'm interested in too. Um, how come, uh, relative to the rest of, how come there's uh, so much more unceded territory in BC? Uh, well, no treaties. Um, well, yeah, BC like why? Didn't, well, I mean, there's, I, I don't, I, I'm mostly speculating, um, but I mean, there's a mountain range between BC and everywhere else. Uh, Hard to get. The DC to. nations were wealthy and powerful. Still are many. Um, so good economy. And, uh, well, in, as part of the economy, but also just as like forces to be reckoned with. Um, and I think maybe weren't too interested in treaty. Also, the government of BC like didn't become part of what's now Canada until much, much later and had a different political tradition, I think, of just being like a more kind of American frontier mentality that, uh, well, it's we're just going to take it. Um, and I don't think we're really even interested in doing treaties or anything. Uh, and then there was just this like high pitched scream from the entire province when the court decisions came down. They're like, oh boy, like, this is going to get complicated. And yet those decisions were 20 years ago and we have one. So, yeah. Okay. Um, well, so then uh, the, the last question I see here, uh, okay, well, actually there's two. So um, one person is asking, can you just do a quick restatement of what the sort of key takeaway from Calder is? Oh. <laughs> David, uh, are there seven different decisions in Calder? It's a nightmare. Yeah. Um, okay. So the, the main thing to take away is that for the first time, six of seven Supreme Court judges recognize the inherent right of Aboriginal people to land. This is the first time this has ever happened. It wasn't dependent on the goodwill of the crown. It didn't crystallize in some way at uh, discovery or sovereignty. They had an inherent right. They'd been living on the land for many years in organized societies. They weren't too primitive to have rights. The rights were inherent. That would be the main sort of legal takeaway. I would say that the other... There are other takeaways that are equally important. Uh, one would be that it really brought um, the idea of Aboriginal rights from the periphery of Canada and the periphery of legal thing into the center stage. So now we were talking about Aboriginal rights. And shortly thereafter, 
um, Jean Chrétien, who was then Minister of Foreign, uh, uh, Diane, um, uh, said, okay, we're going to start concluding treaties. We're, we need to make an effort to conclude modern treaties. And then wasn't that long after when um, uh, the con constitution was patriated and section 35 was included as a direct result of Calder. So it had a bunch of knock-on effects. I mean, the ultimate takeaway from the case itself was the recognition of inherent rights, but you can kind of trace the sort of effects it still has to this day on not only not only Canadian, honestly, but international law. There was a famous case called Mabo that was decided in Australia that cites Calder. Um, it was it was really a groundbreaking case. And it's just unfortunate we haven't <laughs> made a whole lot more progress since then. But cool. Just to say, just to say also, I guess maybe by a way of explanation. Six of seven judges decided uh, that inherent Aboriginal rights existed. The court ultimately found that they had been extinguished because primarily one of the, the seventh judge found this technicality that the, um, the nation actually required this permission by the attorney general to sue the government and they didn't have it. And so he decided the case on that basis. And then three of, three of the dissenting judges agreed with him. So the case was actually decided on, decided on this kind of, you know, BS procedural matter, but. Okay. Uh, and then the last question that I want to deal with, um, just because I think I want to be mindful of time and stuff is somebody has asked if anybody has uh, put together sort of a, a sort of a summary or a, a compilation of these cases. And uh, to the best of my knowledge, no. Um, but it does give me an opportunity to say that I'm, uh, this is actually something that we're looking at doing at OGEN. Um, <clears throat> Bryce's firm, uh, OKT, is, uh, is, is really one of the leading firms in, uh, in, in doing um, uh, Aboriginal law uh, in, in Canada. And they've, they've, uh, they've got a handbook, which is a, sort of a guidebook for, um, uh, for, for practitioners, but also, I think, aimed at, uh, at consumers and at community. Um, and uh, it's, it's got just about everything in it. And so one of the things that uh, Bryce and I have, have kicked around a little bit is uh, working to make this something which is uh, accessible for high school teachers and high school students. So um, one of the projects that we're looking at taking on is going through that and paring it down and going through uh, reorganizing it so that it's, uh, like I think the way I would break it down is um, looking at um, uh, indigenous legal traditions on their own, uh, looking at treaty law and encounters um, between states and nations, and then looking probably a, a whole section on um, indigenous uh, indigenous people and Canadian criminal law and those kinds of encounters because those I sort of three quite distinct sort of silos. Um, but that is a project that we're that we're looking at, and it is a long term one uh, and an ambitious one, but something that um, uh, is pretty exciting uh, for OGen uh, and something that we'd be looking at teacher consultation on. Um, but uh, uh, certainly uh, something that um, uh, we're hoping to look at. Um, I just see one more thing up here. Oh, that's just somebody saying good idea. Yeah, we think so too. Um, <clears throat> so uh, if there's nothing else, I think um, I'm just going to quickly say uh, for folks who maybe caught our session a couple months ago on child soldiers, um, that one, uh, that uh, fellow Dominic Ongwen is being sentenced tomorrow in The Hague. 
Uh, if you look at Ogen's Twitter feed, you can catch a link for watching that. And then our guest uh, who spoke is actually doing his own panel. So just look at our Twitter feed. Um, you can see that stuff. He's doing expert analysis with the lead counsel, uh, both the prosecutor and the defense for Mr. Ongwin. For uh, you guys who might not be familiar with us, this was Guy who was a child soldier uh, in Joseph Coney's army who is now being tried for war crimes. Uh, so there's a whole bunch of complicated issues uh, around that. Um, uh, if uh, with uh, all of that uh, put away, I just want to say thanks again to Bryce and David for joining us. That was a great session. I know that this is going to be uh, one that people visit again and again. What you guys might not know is that uh, in the uh, in the curriculum, there's lots and lots of demand for stuff that deals with uh, um, issues uh, of the intersection between uh, <laughs> Indigenous folks and Canadian law and not a lot of opportunities and not a lot of material to help teach it. So this is really, really welcome and going to be very, very well used. Um, and I just, uh, I, I can't say enough uh, in the way of thanks for, for, for you fellows making your time uh, to come and join us for this. And uh, thanks to everybody for uh, helping it uh, come together. Um, and thanks to everybody in the audience for joining us. And with that, uh, I'll say goodbye and uh, keep on keeping on get through it uh it's nine weeks to go for you teachers okay <laughs> see you thanks, later everybody all right thanks everyone